Um, for those of you I don't know yet, uh, my name's Rollin. I'm the uh, lead pastor here, and I am happy to share with you this morning. So um, I don't know what your Easter traditions are, but um, some of you uh, maybe are used to a sunrise service. Anybody get up real early in the morning, even before coming here and go out to like lakefront or anything like that? I did not either. Right. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. My parents, my parents sent me pictures. Uh, they live in Charleston, South Carolina of the, uh, what is it? Beachfront and the sun rising and everything like that. And I was like, click, you know, and I went back to sleep. So here's the thing. Um, it's good to be here worshiping together today. And we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well as the stand. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it today in um, several, like several forms. We're going to uh, specifically talk about it um, in reorienting us around the idea of the resurrection and helping people get the right perspective of the resurrection. Uh, the reason being that when we come to an Easter experience, a lot of times people have different uh, perspectives as to why we're celebrating it. I was actually on uh, Facebook. Uh, I don't have a Facebook account, but actually borrow my wife's uh, many times. So if you ever, uh, if you don't know my wife, but get a friend request from her, that's actually probably me. And so, sorry about that. <laughs> but if you, if uh, we, I was looking uh, through Facebook and I actually uh, saw this. It was actually John chapter 20, verses three through four. And it said, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, meaning John, who was actually the author of the Gospel of John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And it had a little uh, caption up from up top that said, John said, I won, because he was a young disciple. And Peter responded to him, who's even going to know? And John whispers quietly, <laughs> that's right, because he's the one who actually run the race. And so obviously that's a joke. But the point is, is that many times we uh, miscalculate or misappropriate the meaning of Easter. And so what we have this morning is an opportunity to really dig into it and understand the significance of the empty tomb. And what we know is that any Easter Sunday, we have a motley crew amongst us. We have people who are Christian and serving God. Um, wholeheartedly. They've been doing so for maybe a couple of weeks, a couple months, a couple of years, um, and they're wanting to continue to do so. We have people in the uh, crowd who are also skeptics, meaning that, you know, I was drugged here by a family member or a friend, and I have some questions. I may not even be interested. I'm just interested in, you know, I mean, getting a good meal afterwards. And like the thing is, is that's actually the place that I was in for many years. I did not grow up in church. And so the only time I would go to church is when my grandparents parents made me. God rest their souls. They're gone now, but I'm thankful for them. And then finally, we also have uh, people who are uh, potentially uh, what we like to call prodigals, meaning that you had a period of time where you grew up in the church, but uh, as life and circumstance happened, you may have drifted from the church over the years and have come back on a high holy day, a holiday like this one to really engage Jesus once again. And so what we want to do is we want to answer the questions about the importance and the significance of the resurrection and the empty tomb in four parts today. Number one, we want to answer the question, why does the empty tomb matter? Why does it actually even matter to our lives and to the world around us? Number two, we want to answer the question, how can I historically have confidence that there was an empty tomb? How can I historically have confidence that there was an empty tomb? Number three, we want to answer the question, what does the empty tomb mean about Jesus, the Christ? 
And then finally, number four, what does the empty tomb mean for me? Okay? So we're going to go through that in that succession, but I'd like to start with um, a picture that many of you recognize from this past week. What we see is, uh, unfortunately, this was um, in the news, um, this uh, picture of Notre Dame. And if you see, how many uh, actually keep up with the news know what happened this past week? Okay, it was actually a picture of the historic Notre Dame actually burning to the ground. And I am prone to think that it was caused by Josh Mankin, who was over there doing work in Paris this week. I'm just kidding. But the, the point is, is he's back. But the, the, the thing about this uh, historic site burning down is that it meant so much to so many people. It meant so much to so many people, not both Christian and non-Christian alike. It was obviously a, a steadfast, a bastion of Catholicism throughout the history of uh, the French people. It was um, important as a monument. Uh, millions of people came to visit it year after year, and it was so important to the culture that uh, <clears throat> that even Apple and other companies like that are pledging millions of dollars to help rebuild it now. Now, the thing about it, though, is that the edifice itself, it has cultural significance, but even more than that, it's actually a picture, in my mind, of life without God. When people have had an exposure um, to God or maybe didn't grow up around God at um, a particular point in their life, what happens is that inevitably what begins to um, be introduced to our lives is sin and the effects of sin. And it comes to literally burn our lives down to the ground. Now, I'm not talking about like uh, that your life is in disarray right now, but you know that things are potentially off. You know that things aren't the way they should be in the world around us, and it's literally a result of a life without God. But whenever we talk about the resurrection, the resurrection, first of all, actually matters because Jesus came to reconcile us to God, redeeming our sins, scorched lives, and our broken lives through the effect of sin in our life. And so that's just imagery for that. Now, if we're going to actually see Jesus redeem our lives and really bring us back on a path of purpose and what he meant us for, what we've been going through is the letter of First Peter to the church, which actually talks about how to put God first in our lives. If we're going to be redeemed from um, the scorching and the burning of sin in our lives, we've got to learn to put him first. And the acronym FIRST we've utilized was actually giving us a roadmap for how to put him first in our lives. And it came through number one, focus, number two, identity, number three, reverence, number four, suffering. And today we're talking about because of the resurrection, learning to trust him learning to trust him in the midst of the fallenness around us, in the midst of the effects of sin around us. And we'll see that this is how Peter, the apostle who walked with Jesus, actually ended his letter. So if you have a Bible today, open with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll start talking about the importance of the resurrection. Now, Peter in verse 1 starts by uh, speaking to elders in the church. And elders were those who were, helped govern the church, helped be examples for the leader, um, for the other believers in the church. And he was saying that because I experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm willing to live my life on behalf of him and other people despite the challenges that I face. And here's how he talks about it. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, meaning he's already speaking about not only his life and his miracles, not only his death, but his resurrection and ultimate return from the dead, he says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when we're looking at this even exhortation of Peter, Peter was one of these witnesses of not only Jesus' life, his sinless life, but also his death on the cross, his sacrificial death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. And whenever I started to read the Bible, I was sort of a pragmatist, and I not only wanted to put my faith in the idea of what Jesus had done, but how he applies to my life on a daily basis. And what we see here very clearly in the Scripture is that when Jesus is talking about his resurrection, he's coming as a conquering king to set people free. He's coming literally to redeem broken and sin-scorched lives that the devil, even as there's a real God, there's a real devil, has come to steal from, to kill, and destroy. This is what the Apostle Peter, one of the witnesses of Jesus' ministry, was talking about. He said, there is a real God, but there is also a real devil. And this devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Now, I don't know about you, but whether you believe in God or you believe in the devil or not, how many people know that we're surrounded by issues in this world? And that the issues that we're surrounded by, whether they be personally or societally, they're not just always caused by natural things. Has anybody ever realized that some of the interactions that you have or some of the issues that you have in life have sort of a supernatural origin to them? They're saying that this is not just natural. The things that I'm dealing with aren't just a product of my own decisions or my family line or things that have been passed down, but there's something going on that's provoking the issues that we have going on around us. Now, not only does that, um, not only does the Bible point to sin as the issue, but it also points to a supernatural reality that there is a devil who comes to destroy people's lives. But the good news is, is that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was actually putting the devil on display. He said, though you are trying to eradicate me and my people, I'm showing you that I have victory over death itself. And I can to set people free who all their lives were held captive by their fear of death by my resurrection from the dead. What we see is that what we earn for sin is death. What we earn for our wrongdoing is death in relationships. 
We earn um, death in our mental state. We earn death in our bodies. All of the choices that we make that are against God and his commandments, they have consequences to them. Isn't that not true? Has anybody ever before looked at the world around you and actually seen the problems, but then you looked at your own life and said, some of these problems aren't other people's fault. Some of the problems I'm experiencing are my own. Anybody ever been there before that I've done this? I'm the cause of this. I want to point the finger at everybody else, but the truth of the matter is I'm the culprit here. And what he's saying is that what we earn for sin is death, but the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope. It matters because on the cross, he took the penalty for sin. On the cross, he provided a way for us to be forgiven for our sin. And on the cross, he not only died, but went into the grave. And three days later, according to his promise, was resurrected from the dead, saying, despite death was your um, destiny, and despite the fact that death was what you deserved, I, through my resurrection, am giving you the hope and the promise of life. It matters because every one of us invited death into our lives, but Jesus, through his resurrection, says, I'm giving you new hope. I'm giving you a second chance. I'm giving you the option of a clean slate. I'm giving you the hope of another life. That's why the resurrection matters. Now, if it matters, we have to ask ourselves, is it actually true? It's not just good as a bedtime story. That's what I used to think of it as whenever I was a non-Christian, right? Where I, before I was in the church, I thought it was an empty platitude. Do you know what I mean by an empty platitude? I used to think that it was something that people clung to just to make themselves feel better. It's almost like when you have loved ones or family members die and they talk about going to a better place, right? It's like, well, they may be going to a better place and they may not, they may not. They're going to a better place if they've actually found themselves in the one who gives life and is actually resurrected from the dead. If not, they're actually going to a worse place, right? That's what the Bible clearly says. He says over and over again in a paraphrased term and in not so many words that for the person who does not know God, this life with all of its problems and all of its troubles is as good as it gets. But for the Christian who is participating in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, this life and all the issues with it are as bad as it gets. And what we have through the resurrection is a looking forward to what gets better. But do we have a hope that it actually gets better? How can I historically have confidence that there was an empty tomb? Well, Mark chapter 15, first of all, gives us the account. Starting in verse 42, it says this, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, meaning <clears throat> the day Jesus was uh, crucified, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse, meaning of Jesus, to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So you see that at Jesus' crucifixion, he was whipped, beaten, scorched before he went to the cross. And then actually on the cross, he was suffocating, right? He was suffering from asphyxiation, basically suffocating, not being able to pull himself up over and over again. And finally, on the day of preparation, the, when his, he gave up his spirit and said, it is finished, I've paid for the sins of humanity, for the sins of the world, he gave up his spirit, breathed his last, and died. And the Roman guards came and made sure of that by jabbing a stake through his side, (laughs) jabbing a stake through his side, puncturing his heart so that there would be water and blood flowing out of him, right? Water and blood flowing out of him. He was dead. Pilate was surprised he died so quickly, but you would have died quickly too if you had taken the sin of the world on yourself, if you had actually been the substitutionary sacrifice, taking all of the wrath of God upon yourself to actually see that you and I would go free, right? Jesus died quickly, so we know that he was dead. Then this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, came, took his body, and in veneration, put his body in his own tomb that he had purchased. So they knew where the tomb was. They knew people saw his body placed in that tomb, and they were confident that he was gone. But the verses uh, go on to say this in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath, Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the t- from the tomb? Why? Because this tomb stone was massive. It wasn't just like picking up a stone and like heave ho and pushing it. It took a whole host of people to move the weight of the boulder that was keeping it there. And they were like, how are we going to get to him? How are we going to do this? And looking up, they saw the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." This is the account that the scripture gives us about Jesus' resurrection. How can we know that it's historically accurate? Well, we can know it basically through multiple ways. If you're interested in um, sort of where I'm getting these uh, ideas from, it's actually a good website you can go and look at later. It's called crossexamine.org, crossexamine.org, like in a legal case, crossexamine, okay, Um, .org, a little play on words, okay? And you can actually look up evidence for the resurrection there. But one of, the, one of the first things that you see is that we can have confidence in Jesus' resurrection because of the Jerusalem factor. The Jerusalem factor, meaning that Christianity itself started in Jerusalem. Meaning that whenever Jesus was crucified and buried, it was in a place where both the Roman authorities and the Jewish population who did not subscribe to his death, burial, and resurrection were resisting him in that place. And it spread from there. You've got to understand that the majority of the early Christians were Jewish, meaning that they were people who were converts to um, what we call Christianity because they 
received Jesus as the promised Messiah, Jesus as the coming Christ that had been prophesied for hundreds of years. But this Jerusalem factor was that if I wanted to deny that Jesus was resurrected, his opponents could have gotten his dead body and said, here he is, obviously not. Obviously not. But no production of his body was given because of the fact that he was raised and gone. He was raised and gone. The scripture said ascended into heaven to the right hand of the father so that he could rule and reign until his return. The Jerusalem factor is a, um, evidence for his resurrection. But number two, all four gospels feature women as witnesses to the empty tomb. All four gospels feature women as witnesses to the empty tomb. Now you might be like, so we're in a modern age. So <laughs> women power. <laughs> Uh, you know, I saw this uh, thing where, uh, like, actually a, a quote the other day was like, without women preachers, we wouldn't actually have the gospel as we have it today because no, the first people to testify about his resurrection were ladies. Come on, ladies. Okay? Why that's significant is because in that culture, women were seen as second-class citizens. In that culture, women were actually seen as people whose testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law. And so to be able to point to women as the first evidence of Jesus' resurrection when the gospel writers are writing, they would have been embarrassed to do so. But to be truthful, they said, this is just how it is. This is how it is. I've got to be truthful to what actually happened and the evidence that's given. And so God very clearly said, I'm going to have the ladies do it first. Now, God, obviously, God esteems women, right? But in the culture, they didn't. And so what he did is I'm going to turn things upside down by my kingdom, and the women are going to be the first to proclaim me. It's evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even culturally. What else? We know that the enemies of Christianity presupposed the vacancy of the tomb when they said that the disciples stole the body. Whenever you look in the, even the Gospel of Matthew, when he was writing about the resurrection, it said that there was a um, testimony that went about the community saying that the body of Jesus was actually stolen by his disciples. But here's the thing. That's actually evidence for the tomb being empty because the enemies are saying it was not there. Make sense? It's sort of like, that's an easy one, but it's sort of like, okay, fine, you could say that it was stolen, but the fact is the tomb's empty. We know that there was an empty tomb. Number four, the empty tomb is multiply attested. What, it meant, what that means is that basically in the gospel, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as in John, which was a, um, another gospel, and then as well as in 1 Corinthians 15, authored by the Apostle Paul, we see that the um, resurrection of Jesus Christ was multiply, um, multiply spoken of over and over again by multiple sources. And any historian would tell you that when it's coming from two or three or more sources, that you could verify that that's a fact because of the fact that it's coming from multiple sources, multiple angles, and people are saying the same thing about it. Number five, we see that Mark's account, which we just read, is simple and lacks signs of embellishment. It's simple and lacks signs of embellishment. How many people remember like reading uh, ancient mythology, Greek mythology? Anybody ever find that they were just like us but had some powers? 
Okay, <laughs> right? It's sort of like when you think of Hercules, right? Uh, or, you know, better yet, think of Zeus. We'll go to the top dog, right? You think of Zeus. You think, man, I was actually, I was probably more moral than Zeus. Anybody ever think that? Zeus is just angry. He's always trying to destroy people. He's unfaithful, right? He's always fathering all these illegitimate, you know, and then all of a sudden you say that these are our gods. It was mythology. But what you see is that in the account of uh, Jesus and the resurrection, what most historians say is that Mark's account in its simplicity takes out the mythological element to it. It just gives you in its genre an explanation that is clear and lacks any type of embellishment to it, as opposed to even apocryphal literature. How many people have heard of apocryphal literature before? Okay, the apocryphal literature, it's like basically years after those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, they came with pseudonyms, meaning there's, as an example, the Gospel of Peter, which came later in the second century AD, not written by the apostle Peter, but written by those who assumed his name, trying to assume credibility, right? And in that apocryphal gospel, they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and instead of this simple characterization, they talk about the tomb being removed and three giant figures coming out. And in the midst of the giant figures, one of whom's head went through the clouds, there was a cross that came out. And the cross began to speak to people saying, have you preached to those who are dead? And it's like, does that not sound like legend to you? Okay, well, to me, it sounds a lot like legend. To me, it sounds a lot like legend. But what we see in the Gospels themselves is they're giving accurate historic account of how things actually happened with all of its idiosyncrasies and its realities. What we also see is there are multiple literary forms and that the reason the women went to the tomb, it was a historic fit and had coherence to it, meaning that the very reason that the women were going to the tomb is because that there was Jewish tradition that said after somebody was dead, a loved one, a family member, or a friend, the people would go to anoint the body with spices and oils, right? And so the fact that the women showed up there first to see and witness the resurrection of Jesus, it was actually a validation going along with the cultural norms. It was part of the historic evidence for it. And then finally, what we also see is that there was archaeological evidence present that um, presents an edict and makes the most sense of Jesus' empty tomb in light of the Gospels. What I mean by that is after Jesus' resurrection, then Roman governors began to make it illegal for grave robbing. They began to make it illegal for any type of disturbance of graves. Why? Because there was this Christianity that started to be spread in the midst of the Roman Empire saying that, listen, this Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. Now we're going to stamp out any other possibility of some sort of false religion going forth um, because we're going to make sure that we penalize with death or at least some sort of fine any disturbance of any grave. They were doing that because Jesus' grave was empty. And because of his empty grave, the, cru the truth and the gospel of Christianity was going forward. What we see over and over again is that the evidence points to Christ's empty tomb. Jesus' empty tomb was also never venerated as a shrine. I, um, many of you have read works by a philosopher and apologist named J.P. Moreland before, and he actually said this, that 
in Palestine during the days of Jesus, at least 50 tombs of prophets or other holy persons served as sites of religious worship and veneration. Has anybody ever been to the Holy Land before? Okay, okay, and seen some of the um, sites, okay? However, there is no good evidence that such a practice was ever associated with Jesus' tomb. Since this was customary and since Jesus was a fitting subject, object of veneration, why were such religious activities not conducted at his tomb? The most reasonable answer must be that Jesus' body was not in his tomb. And thus, the body was not regarded as an appropriate site for such veneration. It seems then the lack of veneration at the tomb of Jesus is powerful evidence that the tomb was empty. Meaning that people often begin to go around like religious sites and worship there, right? But none of that was done in Jesus' time. Why? Because the body was gone. Is this making sense to you? I was thinking of the resurrection in light of our uh, even recent political landscape. Anybody keep up with the news? Okay. And in the light of our recent political landscape where uh, the Mueller reports came out, anybody been following that? Okay. (laughs) All right. The Mueller reports investigating alleged collusion with the president and Russia during our latest um, presidential elections. As I was thinking about it, it brought me naturally to an earlier time of confirmed scandal in our country with Richard Nixon and Watergate. Anybody remember Watergate? Okay. Anybody live through Watergate? Anybody read about Watergate? Come on, young people. Okay. Okay. You know what Watergate is. Okay. You remember that. Okay. One of the men involved uh, in Watergate was a man named Charles Colson. And if ever, any of you ever heard of Charles Colson before, he was part of the propagators of Watergate, who after his conviction and imprisonment um, became a Christian. Here's what he's had to say about, about the resurrection. Charles Colson, Colson said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. Remember, he was part of the cover-up scheme in Watergate. He said, I know the, that the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. For three weeks. As opposed to the 40 years of torture, oppression, and persecution with those who held to the testimony of Jesus and his resurrection. This has helped to understand that we have historical certainty that Jesus, in fact, left the tomb empty. Now, the question is, if that's the case, what does the empty tomb mean about Jesus? Well, when we go back to John's testimony about Jesus, we see that he starts his gospel with this, saying, in the beginning was the Word, which actually in Greek culture meant the meaning of life, the meaning for all existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was anything made that was made. 
was not anything, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And you can skip down to verse 14. It says, and the word, this word became flesh. This word became flesh, meaning he put on human flesh to come and walk amongst us. He put on flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only, <clears throat> as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The resurrection of Jesus is pointing to his divinity. The resurrection of Jesus is pointing to the fact that he's a prophesied son of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Paul the apostle, who was writer, a writer of three-fourths of the New Testament letters, actually said it this way. In his introduction to the Roman church, he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and, holy, and, and in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ meaning God was attesting to his divinity, his importance in all of our lives, his fulfillment of all messianic prophecy by his resurrection from the dead. It's not enough that we need a savior. We know the importance of the resurrection because we've all dealt with the issues in our life and we know fundamentally we need someone to save us even from ourselves. We know that we have historical and reliable evidence that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and that the grave in which he was buried was empty. But what it says about Jesus is that his resurrection from the dead pointed to the fact that he's the one, he's the awaited one, he's the only one who could ever fulfill that role. Jesus the Christ, the resurrected king. And if that's what it says about Jesus, then the question is, what does the empty tomb mean for me? What does the empty tomb mean for me? Now, some of you actually over the past weekend watched this man. You actually watched this man who was actually after 11 years of turmoil, 11 years of injury, 11 years, right, of really having his life torn apart by his own sin, work his way back to actually winning his first title in 11 years. How many people were uh, able to see that? Okay, ESPN at least. Okay, <laughs> okay. Part, what, part of what the resurrection means to me is that if this man could come back, I know that in Jesus even more so, I can come back from all the things that I'm suffering and that I'm facing. It does not mean it does not mean that you won't have trial or trouble in this world. But I think that each of us, depending on which place we find ourselves today, need to understand that God has resurrection power for you through Jesus Christ if you would just turn to him and embrace who he is and what he's done for you. For the Christian, I, I think of often about the uh, Hillsong song, Inside Out. It's an older song now, but how many people remember that song? From the inside out, right? 
He talks about a thousand times I fail, still your mercy remains. Come on, we sing with me. Still, <laughs> and if I stumble again, still I'm called in your grace everlasting. Okay, stop. So here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. For the Christian, for the Christian, there's resurrection power for us, right? That because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he said, though a righteous man or woman, as they're trying to serve him, may fall seven times, seven times he gets up again. That when you're trying to serve the Lord in holiness, righteousness, faith, and faithfulness, sometimes you stumble. Has anyone ever stumbled before as a Christian trying to do what's right in this sanctification process in God? Well, if you've ever stumbled, you're in good company because the very man that we started with, the very letter we started with was written by a man named Peter who denied Jesus on the eve of his, uh, on the eve of his betrayal and crucifixion. Peter, who said, Jesus, I don't care if everyone else denies you, I'm going to be with you to the end. I'm your ride or die, baby. I'm your ride or die. And Jesus said, Peter, I know you have good intentions, but before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, according to Jesus' word, once, twice, and three times, Peter denied Jesus in his time of need. But you know what Jesus did? After his resurrection from the dead, he came back to restore Peter. He came back to restore Peter, and he actually, prior to even his betrayal, prayed to the Father. He said, listen, you know what, Father? I know that Satan, that enemy that roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, I know that the devil desires to sift Peter like wheat. Why? Because I've called him to be somebody. I've called him to do something. I've called him to be a leader in my church. And so the devil decides to, is trying to sift him like wheat. But I've prayed for him that his faith may not fail. So after he's returned, may he strengthen his brothers. And the good news of Jesus' resurrection is that he provides an opportunity for a second chance. Not, because he, not only because he paid for the, pri the price for the, of the wrath of God for our sins, but then by his resurrection from the dead offers a way for new life, offers a way for forgiveness, offers a way that we could be set free from that which previously beset us. For the skeptic, what does the resurrection mean? It means that there's, quite frankly, a judgment to come. When I and you will have to give an account of our lives to a holy, righteous God. It means that my sin earned death and condemnation for me, but that Jesus paid a substitutionary price on the cross. It means because Jesus was innocent and sinless, death could not hold him. It means that there is life after the grave, and Jesus calls me to an eternal peace with him. It means that he offers me forgiveness and that he covers over all my wrongs as I repent of my sin and put my trust in him. It means Jesus calls me to healing that can begin now. Part of what many of you need in here is that you just need healing from the scourge of sin in your life, whether it be in your body, whether it be in your mind, whether it be in your relationships. He says the resurrection of Jesus offers that even to the skeptic. It means Jesus calls me to also a power to begin new life with him today because of his resurrection from the dead. 
And for the prodigal, it means that Jesus has come to deliver you and set your life back on course. Even if you've gone astray, he can set you back on course. Even if you considered yourself up to this point a a sort of a Christmas Easter only, we like to call you CEOs, right? A Christmas Easter only Christian. The thing is, is that you can come back and get your life on course in him. There was a man who also experienced resurrection from the dead prior to Jesus' resurrection. You may be familiar with him. His name was Lazarus. Anybody familiar with a man named Lazarus? He was a friend of Jesus during Jesus' ministry, but unfortunately, because of a illness, he unfortunately died, what we consider prematurely. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, who were crying out, Jesus, Jesus, heal my brother. Jesus, Jesus, could you not have saved my brother? Jesus, Jesus, couldn't you have spared us this pain? And Jesus said, listen, I loved him. I love Lazarus who died and experienced all that pain, but this has got to be done so that I might be glorified. And in the midst of Lazarus' death, Jesus, after a couple of days, Lazarus himself being in the grave, a couple of days reaping the consequences of death in his life, Jesus came to that grave and comforted his mourning sisters and Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. Some of you might remember that old scene from YouTube, right? Where Jesus is at like 11 and, you know, so... He said, come forth out of the grave. You might have been dead for a period of time. Your hopes may have been dashed. Your dreams may have been gone. But I'm telling you, Lazarus, come out. And when the people asked him why he would speak such uh, such a way, he answered this question. He answered the question this way. He said, I am the resurrection, and the life. This is what Jesus said about himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And those who live in me will never see death. This is what Jesus said. He said, doesn't matter where you started, doesn't matter what death you find yourself in today, he is the resurrection and the life. And that baby is testifying, (laughs) saying, yes, Lord, yes, the resurrection and the life. And he says, I have this for you. I have this for you. So whether you find yourself today, the Christian needing to get back on track, number two, the skeptic just needing some answers, or number three, the prodigal who God's trying to bring home, the truth is, is that Easter Sunday can be a celebratory day for you. 
This can be a day of life change. This can be a day where you're leaving death behind, putting your faith in Jesus, the risen Christ, turning from your sin and repentance and putting your trust in him, saying, Jesus, make me new. I receive what you've done for me. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate. That's why we give God our allegiance, our trust, and ultimately our hearts. Amen? So worship team, if we would, let's come back up and worship the living God, the resurrected Christ who came to set us free.